0: Hello and welcome to the 100th episode of the Creative Waffle Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Hirons, and the podcast today is brought to you by Blue Day Design and Design Cuts. Design Cuts is a place where you can get all of your graphic design resources whilst helping out the podcast. I do have an affiliate link with Design Cuts, so if you do want to help out the Creative Waffle Podcast, whilst getting your graphic design resources like mock-ups, textures, graphics packs, different font bundles and more, you can use the link in the description of this video or podcast wherever you're listening to it. Just a quick one about Creative Waffle Live 2019. It will be live uh, in London. We we'll have a complete live event. We we'll have a live panel, but you can ask guests. Uh, designers will be giving talks. That'll be July the sixth, 2019, um, and more tickets and information will be coming out soon. Go and follow uh, us on social media for that on uh, Instagram at Creative Waffle or at Blue Deer Design or Twitter. You can find us at C Waffle Podcast. So. Thank you very much, and uh, I hope you enjoy this episode. It's been an absolute pleasure doing these podcasts for 100 episodes now, and this one um, really blew me away. So I hope you enjoy it too, and let's get into it. Well, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. This is uh, this is a bit surreal really because when I started this podcast, you were the guest that I was going to have at the end, like the, like the last episode, and that would be 100. And all right, I carry on though. I'm going to keep it going. But um, are we going to make 100, or is it? Are yeah. we already? Yeah, this would be a hundred. This would be the hundredth episode coming out. Oh, nice. on, uh,
1: Perfect, wonderful.
0: <laughs> scheduled to be on uh, Christmas Day, which is crazy. Oh, yeah, a bit spooky. Um, but yeah, it's, it's yeah. Thank you very much for doing it, and I appreciate your time. The film. Uh, we're going to talk about the film. We're going to talk about uh, your happiness and relationships and the um, day to day, your diary, just, you know, your note taking, and and everything like that. Uh, I got a few questions at the end. Obviously, talk about creativity and and yeah, just just want to get to know you a bit more and um obviously you've put a lot out online you put a lot of uh, personal stuff out and sharing sharing a lot more than other designers do so people can go and check out the story and everything behind you and who you are over there yeah uh, first of all your definition of happiness what does it mean to you
1: well i think that you know over the past 10 years uh that was quite a central subject to a lot of um, the bigger projects that i was involved in with this film Called the Happy Film, did an exhibition, that traveled around the world, called the Happy Show, and so that question of a definition, of course, was on my mind. And the, uh, the one, the best one that I came across, uh, was one that that defined the various kind of happinesses by length of time. So you have some super short ones that would be like the happy moment when you go around the corner and you just it just hits you and you have this second of a boost where you just feel great so that lasts a second or an orgasm would be part of that maybe a number of seconds but it's very short term and then you have something that we probably would call much more uh satisfaction or well-being that can last for hours you know whatever it's sunday afternoon the sun shines into the apartments the the dog and the newspaper and it's just so like a perfect timing without stress and you're like you know for a couple of hours i can be satisfied mm-hmm. and then there is something that's much longer that can probably last a lifelong that's more associated with uh, uh with meaning uh and that's you know finding the thing that you're good for in life uh, you know fulfilling your potential and these three things, of course, have nothing to do with each other. They're very distinct experiences. Like an orgasm is very much different from finding your full potential. Uh, But we all group them into this incredible, large thing of uh, of happiness. And I think that's also one of the reasons why there is so much misunderstanding in that space, because one person might... You know, talk about the meaning of life, and the other person talks about sex, mm. and very different. Yeah,
0: yeah, that's a really good point. And obviously, obviously, uh, mean, something I've been doing as well. And obviously, a lot of people try to keep track of their happiness, and it, it's something that it, it does go up and down. And and you know, like you say, it, people always bunch it together and and keep and try and keep you know this one thing is happiness, but you've got to try and break it down. Um, I noticed that you've been doing uh, a day-to-day diary, like a a weekly diary you mentioned in the film. Uh, And and you've got certain topics that you you tick off and number and keep track of, and things you've done. Could you explain a bit more about that? I've
1: been a good note keeper for a long time. Uh, I think I've been probably keeping a diary since I was, I don't know, eight or nine years old. Uh, And I would say for the first, I don't know, 15 years, not very consistently, but I would say since the last, for sure, since about 20 years, very consistently. Like, so that's, I would say, since, 20, since over 20 years, I've definitely wrote pretty much one thing into the diary at least once a week. Right. And uh, that is sort of augmented by a little list that I keep that I'll do every year with my sister. Where we both sort of like think of where we could get better. Mm. And, you know, what's, what aspects of my life or my personality or my surroundings, things that, that uh, I would like to change, and hopefully I pick things that I actually can change, and then I grade myself on those once a week, mostly together with the diary writing I do both at the same time. You know, and uh, the the second one, that grading stuff, is basically just a reminder that I wanted to get better at that and see how did I do last week in that particular thing.
0: Are you quite strict on yourself? Do you do you actually improve each week, or or you you sort of? Yeah, if it doesn't happen, it doesn't happen.
1: Well, there is some there is there is some aspects of these things uh, that I'm that I get very good at and I get good grades for a long time. And if, they, if I get excellent grades for a very long time, they, they fall out and I discontinue them for next year because I feel I've hopefully mastered them. And there's some other ones that I get that I'm bad all the time, that I uh, you know have to try to improve, but I get bad grades all the time. And some that go up, up and down. So I have all three.
0: Yeah. I- uh, so what, what sort of stuff? What sort of stuff are you really bad at? What, what what's on the bad list that you want to share? or can share.
1: <laughs> uh, I know that recently I got bad notes. I think I had in there. So, so if I properly sit down and think about concepts twice a week, right? I got bad grades on that in the past. I would say, a couple of months. Was also, because you know, we were gearing, I had an excuse because we were gearing up to this uh uh, uh big exhibition on beauty that uh, opened two weeks ago in Vienna, and uh, so there was a lot of like my prime work was really in supervising how this how these various things were executed. Mm. And, I had an excuse in my mind that, oh, like, you know, I just don't have the time right now to sit down and think about something else. But of course, I'm also very aware that these are always excuses. I always have the time to do whatever I want, really.
0: Yeah, there's definitely a thing about making like, excuses that you can, yeah, short term, you can put it off. But then if that bad thing keeps getting worse and worse, and they've got to deal with it at some point. Uh, so, so I'm making this film, uh, a happy film. You can, people can go and watch it and uh, see what they think. But when I was watching it, it was it was like a roller coaster. Yeah, I think that's pretty. Is that what you intended to get people to come on your emotional roller coaster and take you, your emotions up and down and show show you your uh, emotions through loads of scenarios and a few years of your life and it's very, very personal to you. Um, but what did you learn from from making the film?
1: Well, there was a lot of things. For one thing I learned how to make a film. Yeah. because I had no clue. And it turned out to be much, much, much more difficult than I had expected. Uh, as an additional challenge of, you know, like one of the reasons to make a film was the challenging part of it because we could have easily made a book, which would have been much easier. Like, you know, I have a fairly good experience in making books, so we could have easily made, but it would have been a much easier thing to make a book on happiness than to make a film. Uh, as an additional challenge in there that I'm now from my, with some distance, I'm not even sure if it was a very good idea. Like on top of it, on top of the decision to make a film instead of a book, I, together with Hillman Curtis, decided that we're not going to have that, well, I had a script, but we are going to throw the script out and we're just going to shoot whatever happens. And so we're going to make an open-ended film, one that we don't know where it's going. And I think that that is very much against how I normally work. I'm very much I'm a, plan, I'm a planner, otherwise, as you can tell from the diaries and the gradings and all that stuff. And if I think back on it now with some distance to it, I'm not sure if that was that smart of a decision. Because for sure, a large, a large segment of the struggle that we had in the film came from the non-planning. Like it's, I think that I would have been much more comfortable at least planning out the, the, the big posts and planning sort of like the, the, the setup pieces, making that somehow more set in stone from the beginning. I have no idea if that would have made a better or a worse film, I really can't say. But I can say it would have made it a more enjoyable process for me.
0: Mm, right. Yeah, I think I think that's that's what we get taught in media at college. You know, it, everything's planned first, and you have to go through everything, make sure it's make sure it's rigid and and solid before you start filming anything. Oh, it's just gonna fall. But obviously, you've, you've proven that you, know, you can make films. I, I've I've done small, short, sort of personal projects, making films without any much planning as well. But I don't know, it's something about. I mean, me personally, it's something about just going and doing something and then worrying about it later on. Obviously, like you say, you're you're more of a planner. Different personalities to different types of doing things
1: yeah uh I think that uh
2: it would have just
1: been more comfy yeah uh, the uh the quality you know that the reason we made we decided on an unplanned film was because uh challenge and newness, but also we felt oh it might be a more truthful film if we don't plan it because if we plan it then part of this is all will be done on assumptions so, so, and I'm not sure like it's I think that even on the truthfulness of the film like I have an opinion on it of course but I when I see audience reactions they're all over the place there are people who think we made it all up and there are people who think that it's the most truthful thing they've ever seen Yeah. But, uh, there's definitely also quite a lot of cynicism out there who thinks that you know basically that it's all that the whole thing was a setup. Also, which no, it wasn't. But uh, uh, I think many of us, including me, sometimes have a big fear of of appearing naive. So it's much, it's more comforting to question everything.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, I think that's brought on by the people in the news and just in the media in general. And in this day and age, people are more sceptical of everything. And people yeah. talking about fake fake news all the time. And um, yeah, I think it's, it's sort of common nature now to start doing that with everything. Um, what, what do you do? You feel any sort of anything that you want to you want to tell those people, or, or is it just like let them think what they want to think?
1: Meaning my feeling myself is that of the things that I know there is much less fakery and dishonesty going on that than many people surrounding me think. Right. Oh I'll give you another film example. Like I remember almost everybody, or so many of my friends, when they felt, when they saw the exit through the gift shop film, thought mm-hmm. that the whole thing was a was a fake story that Banksy and you know, Shepard Ferry had set up, that they invented this character of Mr. Brainwash and that this whole thing didn't really happen. And I had no smart friends who were convinced this was the case. And then I happened to be able to spend some time with Shepard, with Shepard Ferry and we talked about it and he very very believably told me that this was all exactly how how they showed it in the film. And I already thought that this was the case because I simply couldn't fathom that Banksy would be so unbelievably smart to not only create this first great film, but also to invent this, you know, unbelievable story on top of it. I just didn't think that it was possible from a pure... Amount of creativity point of view, leave mm-hmm. not the moral lying or not lying point of view. But it's a uh, uh, yeah. I think that in general uh, we tend to second guess, from my point of view, too much.
0: Do you think it's, it brings down that happiness level, or the cynicism in the world, and all this worrying? Or, this, or does it create like it
1: might it might it might like I know that there is a pretty good research sort of like that shows I've seen research that compares Rio de Janeiro and Zurich right and, uh, let's say if you go there as a as a person, you would feel that people in Rio are much. Happier than they are in Zurich if you go as a tourist to both places. But if you look at the research, people in Zurich are actually significantly happier than they are in Rio de Janeiro. Mm-hmm. And the difference, like the, the argument why that is, is one of trust that people in Zurich can trust each other much more than people in Rio de Janeiro. Like there's a, uh, I remember one of the elements of that survey showed that 85% of all school children in Zurich think. The sentence, most people can be trusted, is true. And only 15%, so the opposite of people in re of school kids in Rio thought that was the case. So it, from that example, it seems that trust actually, and sort of like readily available trust in your surroundings actually does have an influence on our on how we feel. And in that case, that would actually enter into it, Yes.
0: I think that's one of the most important things in life, the people, the people that are around you. And like you mentioned in the film again, uh, the relationships you have with things and, and people around you as well. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's something I'm trying to work on and, and yeah, forever. You're forever trying to work on it. You said you, your life's a sort of work in progress, isn't it? Um, so do, do you think it's possible to stay and sustain a level of happiness or sustain a, a certain level of, I don't know, depending on how much you earn or how much you've got? Sorry?
1: You mean sustain that a level, a certain level of happiness permanently? Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's not possible. Yeah. I think that. Uh, I think that ultimately happiness was designed by evolution, sort of as a compass to show us the way. You know, mm-hmm. to uh, uh, for something that we can capture here and there for a couple of moments or longer. But that ultimately is not something that we can attain permanently, because uh, we would, I don't know, sit around and eat sweets <laughs> all long, and that is not the purpose of evolution. And it's and it's not the so there's actually there's a psychologist in the UK, Daniel Nettle, who I like quite a lot, and he thinks that it's basically it it was designed as a carrot to show us the way, and uh-huh. we can when they can take a bite of that carrot but will never really
0: reach it permanently that's quite good yeah like drive the carrot in front of the donkey uh exactly. that's good that's a really nice way of thinking about it actually um wait, is there anything that you've been doing uh, on a day-to-day basis to improve your happiness
1: yes so basically in the film as you know i tried three different strategies out you know that are uh, a book that i uh thought was the most helpful to me the happiness hypothesis by Jonathan Haidt who became the um, the scientific advisor for the for the whole film but also for the exhibition uh, and in this book uh, he basically says the most efficient ways to improve your happiness would be meditation uh, cognitive therapy, and medication drugs. And I, in the film, try all three things out to see if he's right, to see what that would happen. Now, in I would say now that I have some distance for the film, I would say out of those three, the most efficient of the three, in my case, would be cognitive therapy. Uh, it also, I think, works well for my personality because... It's efficient, meaning like you see change. It's not like, you know, some therapy that you go for 15 years and you're not quite sure is it helpful or is it not helpful. And uh, it's you're basically in charge of it in the same way that you're in charge of a training regimen. If you say, I'm going to go three times a week to the gym with a personal trainer... You will get better. You will likely i don't—will not become the most powerful person in the world because I don't have the right physique. But I would have had to start much earlier than at my age, and so on and so forth. But in my own, for my own, on my own level, uh, if I start weightlifting three times a week in five months, I will—I will see proper progress. And I felt that cognitive therapy is definitely comparable in that way. As in, the more I'm engaged, the the more I'm engaged with the therapist and the more more I do, let's say, the homework, the better I can be in that thing. Now, the trouble, the downside of it is just like with the gym, if I stop doing it, I fall out of it again.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: You know, like, uh, if I go six months to the gym, and I, let's say, an improved double, I might be, uh, I b- might be back to my set point after a month of not going. Now, it's going to be easier for the second time around to get up there again, but it's still going to be heavy lifting. And it's, I feel it's very similar. Uh, my experience with cognitive therapy is very similar. Uh, I had in the film, it very much appears that the medication, that the drugs were super successful, definitely made the biggest change. Now that I have some distance with it and I did try the drugs again, I found that the second time around they made no difference whatsoever. Uh-huh. So my, uh, my feeling is that the reason that I was in such a great shape during the medication trial was really because I did fall in love with VESA and that it was that that created those incredible highs and not so much the medication.
0: Yeah. Just the right timing, wasn't it? That made you think right. Yeah. Um, So, so what are you doing on a day to day uh, basis? What was a standard day in the life of Stefan Sagmeister?
1: Well, I'd say that. uh, So, right now, I'm not involved in any of those three strategies. I'm not meditating. I'm not in therapy. I'm not on medication. Uh, But I think sort of like the overall thing that I've learned during the seven-year period of making this film is sadly one thing that Jonathan Haidt had already written at the end of his book that I had read in the very beginning of that seven-year period. And it drove home a thing to me that I think I also knew already that sometimes or very often You have to live through things yourself to fully understand them, that you can't just read them in a book. Mm. If we could apply things that we read in books readily into our lives, none of us would need therapy, or I think that it would, it's just, uh, I think a lot of the, well, Uh, And maybe the second point would be that when when I'll tell, and I'll tell it in a second, when I'll tell this thing, you, you could also rightfully say that's actually quite banal. I also discovered in the seven years that quite often big things that are important for your life might be banal. The question is, do I actually really understand it? Do I deeply get it? Yeah. And so the thing is is that I think I found out pretty much a
2: year after we were done with shooting that
1: if I'm able to put my relationships that would be personal relationships that can be a faraway acquaintance or somebody like you who I just am talking to for the first time and you're sitting in London all the way to somebody that I deeply love who might be a partner or and or family members if I put all those relationships if I can manage to put them, those relationships onto a certain level then here and there happinesses might come out from in between those relationships as in we might have a little laugh at the end of this interview. Who knows? Or uh, I might have a fantastic moment of happiness with a lover, or I might deeply understand, uh, have a satisfying afternoon with an acquaintance. Uh, But it requires those those, uh, relationships to be on a certain level. And if I can do the same thing with my work, meaning that I can design my work environment in such a way that happinesses are able to come out from, in between these things. So, for example, if I can can, create, in my case, a studio together with Jessica Bouch, of course, but if I can create a studio where I find the work to be meaningful, hmm. Um, when... When, it, when things become difficult and things always become difficult, I've, never, I've basically never been part of a project that didn't have difficult phases. Then, so when things become difficult, I don't have to give up, but I can say, like you know, okay, I remember I really wanted to do this because I thought it was, there was meaning behind it. And then the third thing would be if I can be involved in something that's bigger than me. And from that bigger than me, that's mostly connected with this meaning. uh, Happiness can come come out of it. So in these three areas. And I, uh, I felt this probably the most strongly when I was on sabbatical in Mexico City pretty much exactly two years ago. And exactly this time, two years ago and was starting working to work properly every day on that beauty subject. And it was a glorious time. Like The whole time there was a great situation. I made very quick, very good friends. And I also felt that this is exactly the kind of subject that I should be working on. I could bring in a lot of people that I've worked with before. or uh, Obviously, Jessica and I were working on it together. And uh, it just, these months in Mexico City, I think we're among the happiest of recent years because that thing that came out of the film was maybe manifested itself the most clearly. Mm. Or now, sadly, and maybe by design I can't say it's been on that level ever since. It hasn't been. Like, you know, then other things happened, like, you know, uh, the the work uh, in Mexico City, I was working mostly on ideas and how to sort of like beginning ideas and sort of like, and checking if they're doable. And then, of course, later on, uh, there were also a lot of, I spent a lot of time Negotiating with museums, which is, you know, a less enjoyable, yeah, uh, a less enjoyable uh, task. So uh, it's not been on that level ever since. But I still believe that there, like, if I can get this up in these three directions—relationships, work, and something bigger than myself—ultimately uh, my chances. For more happinesses to coming coming out from in between are enlarged.
0: Absolutely, yeah, that's that's really nice. I think, uh, yeah, something everyone can take away from this podcast already is that like, you write those down and, and just think about it all, all the time, have it on the board in front of you, or, or write it down on the post-it note and, and think about how you can improve those every day, and a little bit each time, each week, each month, and they'll start getting better and better, and eventually, you never know what you might come to. It's just quite exciting. Yeah. There is a
2: training aspect
0: this dissolve oh.
1: um, sadly it's sort of a never-ending training like one does get better at it but slowly and as soon as one stops as soon as I stop I get worse at it again
0: yeah gotta keep going yeah. um, do you still do those sabbaticals do you still do have those years off yeah.
1: yeah so every seven years uh uh, I take a sabbatical, the rules are that I can't work on anything that comes in from the outside so no client work, no work for charity, no um, covers for design magazines in Japan or anything so it uh, can be uh, uh, work that comes from, from me and I surprised myself every three such years have happened so far and I've worked almost constantly all the time in those three years. it's. Uh, I've had, for example, in the second year, the second year I spent the whole year in, in Bali in Indonesia. I'd rented a beautiful house with a great pool, and I thought I would, there was nobody there to supervise me, so I would have thought that I would at least spend the first two weeks on the pool reading the many books that I brought, and I didn't. I'd, I was more keen on being up, Upstairs in the small office, the small studio that I had there, working away rather than uh, sitting down at the pool. And that, um, I think that does not, that's not initiated by workaholism. It's because I'm not a particular workaholic. Uh, It's more initiated by, I think, when I can work on whatever I would like to do I find that actually more joyful than sitting on a pool reading a book.
0: Yeah. Yeah. How important is that for your first of all mental health and also creativity? And, and do you do you believe in those creative juices, or, or do you do you think they can run out, or do you think it's just a matter of where you are?
2: Hmm. I mean, I would say that. I think they are definitely getting less so, I would think. Right.
1: Or I feel that, let's say, big new things that I came up with when I was 28, you know, completely new directions that I've never worked on before, I'm much less likely to come up with now. Right. And if I look at, let's say, the profession of design, You know, most people do their best. I would say, by and large, a lot of people have do their do a lot of great work in their 20s. But in their 30s, they really are then powerful enough to implement it. And maybe in their 40s, they can then really make it big or publish it uh, on a wide range. And there is exceptions to that rule. I have a long Standing argument with Paula Scheer, who I was say, yeah, on her, uh, I think on her 50th birthday, I said nobody does any good work after 50, <laughs> 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 which she was not very happy about, and uh, she actually would be a fantastic exception of the You know, uh, Paula did some very good work in in her 50s, and actually Paula did some very good work in her 60s. So. Uh, There is definitely exceptions there. Uh,
0: But she's not not doing any good work anymore?
1: Yeah, I'm not sure if I I will be lucky enough to be one of those exceptions. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, I'll let it come. Like, when I I can tell you, because, you know, the past two years worked on uh, this other very large project on beauty, you know, just, uh, just published a book that's going to come out with Feiden in a couple of weeks. And uh, uh, started this exhibition in Vienna that's going to travel heavily. And right now, I mean, it's only been two weeks, but right now I can say I don't feel like going into the next big project, that's for sure.
0: Right. So do you sort of run out? Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, maybe when I was 28, I might have already two or three who knows
0: that's sort of just an age thing isn't it i suppose it's. is yeah i'm worried about that <laughs> i'm worried about it yeah um so obviously growing your own studio and, and a lot of people listen to this youngsters young designers and uh they'll, they'll be wanting to do similar things to what you did you started out on your own in new york um as, as mentioned on other podcasts it was a bold move and why, what what made you want to do that and how did you get it off the ground and how did people start to know about you
1: meaning what made me open the studio? Yeah. Uh, I, at the time, had worked for a company called Edmund Company, ran by a guy called Tibor Kalman, who basically was my hero. He was very much my mentor and I looked very much up to him. And Tibor, after I had worked there for half a year, decided to close Emman Company and move to Rome to do Colors Magazine, the the magazine he had founded for Benetton, to do that full-time. And... uh, that kind of made it clear because Emman company was my favorite design company in new york so now looking for a job at my second favorite just seemed counterintuitive it just didn't seem juicy at all it would have been a bore so there was almost no other I, mean, I wanted to stay in new york i very much liked being back in new york i was in hong kong before so uh, i knew i wanted to stay and it almost Became clear automatically oh i'm going to open a small studio and i'm going to keep it small and i'm gonna concentrate on design for the music industry because that's ultimately what i have would have wanted to do when i wanted to, when I first heard about the profession of a graphic designer when I was fifteen you know this was you know whatever a good ten or twelve years earlier and uh, So that was the idea and it worked almost right away. I think there was a you know a good amount that always in these things. So a good amount of luck involved. Or as in I started the studio in 93, which was very much a downside in New York, which meant that I had come from Hong Kong and had saved some money in Hong Kong. So I could actually buy an apartment that allowed me to put the studio in. The apartment had two levels, not very big, but two levels. So I could have the studio below and the uh, and the living upstairs. So that meant that uh, there was very low overhead. Mm -hmm. And even in the beginning, when we had very, when we had no clients or very one or two clients, we could be a little bit of we could be juicy because there was not a giant overheads that we had to meet. And you know, the the, the clock was ticking incredible. And looking back on that that was an incredible advantage. And definitely one that I would uh, recommend to all people who start the studio, it's incredibly powerful if you don't have, if, if your overhead is very low and you don't need a lot of money. And so you're not getting, you know, you're not getting easily into doing jobs that you ultimately don't want to do. I mean, there is a legion of design studio
2: heads out there. I
1: would say thousands of them who kind of grew their studio without really them noticing. And suddenly they wind up as a studio with 15 or 30 people And they take on jobs to be able to pay all the salaries and pay all the rent of that studio. But the jobs that they take on and they do, they're not really happy with. It's sort of that they, I've heard this countless times that I've built a machine that I now keep running and I really have no interest in the machine. So that seems to be a very common, it seems to be a very common pitfall and uh in many ways not always but in many ways i think that uh, uh i was uh, uh, you know able to avoid that
0: yeah so how how were you that choosing that because obviously you must have had some overheads so obviously you saved up a little bit of money but you have to have some clients so how, how could you do that and and how like where did you get the clients from is one main question a lot of designers struggle with
1: so In the very beginning, let's say I can tell you that i uh I made a business plan uh I basically thought of all the people i thought first I thought of all the expenses that I would have in the first year yeah. the the maintenance for the for the apartments the, the uh the little salary that i'm gonna pay myself the the uh uh, whatever, the computers, the, the website costs, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. And I put them all together and I, I, came, I arrived at a number. Let's say it's $100,000, let's say, for the year. And uh, then I looked at all the people that I could possibly know who could possibly give me a job. Uncles, brothers, mm-hmm. former classmates, people that I've met somewhere, And I uh, put a little promo together and wrote to all of them. And I also made a, a business plan for that. Like I thought, okay, so this guy, maybe I can work for this guy and I might be, make, I might be, uh, he might pay me $10,000. So I need 10 of these guys in order to be able to pay the 100000 that I need. And I would check myself on that, you know, whatever once a month, am I there or not? Mm -hmm. And the first job that I can tell you, the first job, like, so the idea was, we're gonna do design for the music industry, but I had no music clients. I saw all the record labels and I could, got interviews with them, but there was nothing from them. And the actual first job that we got was for a Japanese toilet company. We were designing the type for the remote control that would uh, make the toilet spritz water up
0: your ass. <laughs> uh, and we'll have those over here, so it's it's funny.
1: The the way that and the way we got that client was because a former classmate or a former uh, not be a like classmate somebody uh, a, a friend who studied product design at the same university as me designed mm. the toilet and she mm. needed somebody to do the type. And then we did a nice job at the type and we wound up doing the whole American identity for this very large Japanese company, which I think we did a fine job on, but also that paid properly. So my, my decision in the studio was, it either has to pay well or it has to be music. If it's not one or the other, I'm not taking it on. And I, in the very beginning... I remember, for example, saying no to the Alvin Ailey Dance Company, which is an extremely respected dance company here in New York. And many designers would have loved to work for them because it's a prestigious job. They had done good posters, famous posters in the past. And I thought, no, it's not music and it's not, it's not going to pay well, so I'm not going to do it. So I was, from that point of view, I was quite focused. Mm-hmm. And I remember at the time that I told, a Well-known designer that I didn't take on Alvin Ailey, and he couldn't believe it. He thought that like it was, you know, he thought it was extremely unusual. Yeah. Uh, but it worked well because then the second job that I got was for my brother. My brother, uh, my two older brothers, opened three jeans stores in. In Austria and they needed an identity for them and I was happily doing the identity and the campaign that would run in the newspapers to advertise those and I think that the third one was a record was a cd cover for a friend where I knew the, the singer and it almost paid nothing and we worked for it worked on it forever like you know it paid roughly <laughs> I think it paid a thousand dollars, and we worked 500 hours on it, so it yeah. paid two dollars an hour, I meaning roughly. I don't know the, I don't remember the exact things, but roughly. And uh, but that CD cover was nominated for a Grammy, and that's when the big change came. So record companies noticed. Oh, not only uh, is his portfolio okay. But obviously, it can also execute something all the way into print to the point where it gets, and if quality is such that it gets the Grammy nominated for the packaging, and then the change came, and then we got a lot of music jobs.
0: Yeah. I, I had to share the, what your worst project was or your worst client. That's the juicy stuff, That's everyone wants to know.
1: <laughs> <laughs> is that the question? What was my worst client? Yeah. Time? yeah. I think that I would say the most difficult job I've ever worked on was ultimately the happy film mm. that, had the, that had the largest periods of serious unhappiness with the project with me,
2: yeah.
1: and from a, but it was self-selected and it was my own fault. And I think from a client point of view, probably Aerosmith's Nine Lives was the most difficult job I've ever
0: Okay. How so? I'm allowed to ask
1: that? It's a super long story that uh, is. It's. I think we're gonna take 20 minutes yeah. to get into it. It was just. I think it was one of those situations where I can't really blame a single person. I also wouldn't actually. I wouldn't also blame me. It was just one of those things where the constellation was such. That many things went sour mm, right. and it became a two-year project that was incredibly difficult from a from a, 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 from an everyday point of view that all yielded at the end not great results and that's the worst like you know you can if the process is super difficult but the end result is is good it's easy to forget about the
0: difficult process. Yeah. Yeah. Um, for for design students, and people getting into design, what do they have to do to get noticed by either employees or or uh, or clients or, or do, what other stuff that do, what stuff do they have to do to be a good designer to get noticed?
1: Well, do good, good, work.
0: good work. Yeah,
1: yeah, true, <laughs> yeah, true. Uh, it's it, it really it's. Uh, I mean, here and there, after a talk, I get asked by a young designer. So how do you get famous? <laughs> and
2: I know that this sort of like
1: has a danger of sounding patronizing or so, but it really uh that's really sort of like a far off side product or uh, the at the center of what we wanted to do and I think at the center of what Jessica wants to do ultimately is like the desire to do good work. Yeah, And we, don't, we by far don't achieve it all the time but a couple of times when we do achieve it it, uh, it seems that people do want to see good work. Like I, the, uh, let's say when we opened this exhibition two weeks ago Having been so closely it for two years, it becomes very difficult with these large projects to actually know, is this good or is it not good? Will this work or will it not work? It's just so close. And when I did uh, two days before, the, the team in Vienna was fantastic and they were actually pretty much done two and a half days before the opening. And when I, so I went through it by myself, it was one of those not so often instances in my life where I said, well, it's pretty much at, it's where we are. Like, this is as good as we can make it right now. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've had in the meantime the experience that whenever that is the case, it normally works. Like, whenever we can say, and it doesn't happen often, this is about as good as we can make it right now, other people like it too. Yeah. And I think that there is a, sort of like a satisfying aspect of design, which is that it ultimately has to work, meaning it has to function for it to be design. That's not the only thing it has to do, but it's part of it. And you can sort of like judge it quite well on that. Like, you know, if whatever. Uh, If this social media post... Is designed to create 10,000 likes? Does it do it or does it not do it? Yeah. This chair, is it designed to, uh, to, to sit uncomfortably? Does it do it or does it not do it? Now, the function by itself is not enough. But I think that there has to be, for it to be a good piece, there has to be some sort of beauty to be part of it or from a if I look at it from a user point of view, there has to be some sort of delight as part of it. Uh, because designing a chair that's comfortable is a pretty easy thing to do. And there are, you know, loads of, yeah, yeah. dozens of those. But designing a chair that's also beautiful or delightful for a user is a much, much, much more difficult task.
0: Yeah. Uh, okay. So the last couple of questions I'd like to ask everyone is a bit sort of left field of design. Uh, first of all, what's your best purchase under a hundred pounds, a hundred, a dollars for your case?
1: Uh, uh, the best project that we designed
0: best purchase under a hundred pounds. Sorry. Yeah, hundred dollars.
1: Yeah. Oh, okay. Hmm. Uh... <clears throat> well, but... I probably would say something totally different in half an hour from now. But uh, Looking at it, well, because I'm staring at it from here, would be the the, the egg lamp that we made in, uh, in Bali. That was definitely under 100 pounds, and I can quickly show yes. it to you. It's basically, let's see, and it's just because I'm looking at it, I'm not sure if you can see ah, it. Yeah, so yeah, it's four cartons of eggs, so there is six. There's 20. There's 36 eggs per carton, and they are all on a metal base with LEDs behind it, so you know they obviously light up. Uh, <laughs> when when there's an LED in every egg, and I'm pretty sure. We didn't we worked on it quite a while to make it happen, but I'm pretty sure we didn't spend more than a hundred dollars on yeah.
0: the uh uh on the materials of it. That's awesome. That's nice that it's something you've created as well. Uh so so that's uh next question is how do you want to be remembered?
1: Hmm. I mean sadly, I'm not in charge of that. Yeah. Uh I think what, what would make myself the happiest would be that if I would be remembered as a kind person. I think that's the, uh, yeah, that would, be, uh, that would be my number one. But I have no idea if I'll
0: be, ever be able to achieve that. Well, you've done it for me, you've definitely done it for me, so in my heart you will be. Uh, yeah, uh, that's pretty much it, yeah. Thank you very much for being on the podcast. Perfect.
1: Oh, wonderful, perfect. Thank you so much. Uh, it was it was uh, it actually was uh, fun part.
0: Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Creative Waffle podcast. It was incredible to speak to uh, Stefan. Uh, yeah, this is a really a dream. So thank you very much to you, lots for making it happen, to uh, listening each week, watching each week, and um, just being supportive and, and making it grow and actually making it happen. So thank you, and uh, I hope to see you at Creative Waffle Live in 2019. Also, you can get a Creative Waffle pin badge. You can get one of these awesome things uh, by leaving a review on iTunes. So go onto to iTunes, leave a review for the podcast, DM me making sure that I know it's you that left the review, and then it will get a podcast pin, a badge out to you. Thank you very much. I'll see you in the next episode.